Our Father, indeed, one little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers. No thanks to them abideth. It is to that word, that word of God, the one that became flesh and dwelt among us. It is to he, to him that we ascribe our praise and our worship and thanksgiving. Oh God, we could not stand were it not for his interceding work that he even now at the throne of grace pleads for his people that he intercedes for their needs. He lays hold of the Father's heart as a representative of the Father's people. The people for whom He died. The people that are the apple of His eye. For us, He pleads. And out of the depth of our souls we cry to Him who is our Redeemer, our Counselor, our Friend. The brother who sticks closer to us than any that we've ever known. The one who is our advocate. The one who is our sin-bearing substitute. Oh, how we embrace the Savior afresh this morning. How we love Him all over again. How we have been invited into His presence. And we come gladly. It is our delight to be in the presence of the thrice holy God. And we ask, Heavenly Father, that what goes on here today will be a pleasure for your years, but that it will be a delight for our souls as well. Our Father, you invite worship, and we need to worship. Might there be something that comes out of our, the depth of our beings, that will change us and remake us and shape us into people who are more like the Savior that we love. Our Father, we are, we are looking forward to the week in front of us where we have thousands of opportunities across a week to share Jesus Christ with people that we come in contact with. One such occasion is Vacation Bible School where our little ones will gather and they'll do things and hear things and sing things and we get the opportunity, hundreds of us get the opportunity to, to point them in the direction of a crucified Savior. Our Father, we want them to have a good time. We want them to look at this week as the very pinnacle of their summer. But we want them to see that we are serious about walking with Christ. That they must see Him in all of His crucified beauty. And we pray that as a re result of this week, that many of them might find the saving knowledge of Christ for the first time. Be with every worker, every man, every woman. Might they have set before them this intentioned purpose that our children be introduced to Christ. For the rest of us, O oh God, we have opportunities as well. Might we be reminded that the world watches, 
evaluates and scrutinizes those of us who profess to know you. What they see and hear and taste and smell might give them an appetite for our Savior. Oh God, in this next few minutes, might all of us be able to sense the sweet sound of sandaled feet as the living Christ moves in and among us. Accept our worship. Accept our gifts. They are meager, but they come from hearts that have been bought with a price. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying the ransom for my sin. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I speak in regard to need, for I have learned, in whatever state I am, to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. I want to resume our little summertime study that we began a couple of weeks ago. Actually, this is number three in that summertime study, but I missed you last week. Susie and I were vacationing in Florida, and, and, uh, which was Father's Day, and I was going to say something on Father's Day that I didn't get a chance to say because I was gone, so I just want to mention it real quickly now. Um, I said this on Mother's Day. I say it again on Father's Day, uh, or a week late. This is the best book that's out there concerning a family. If you are in an early marriage, or you're just having children, or your children are young, and you haven't read Edith Schaefer's, What is a Family? Oh, my friends, do yourself a favor. Do your children a favor. And read Edith Schaefer's What is a Family? I don't know of anything else like it in the book writing world. It is something that will, will expand your horizons as you think about your family and what it's supposed to be. Well, let's, uh, let's uh, get back to our series, our summertime series, and it's important, I think, that we all make sure, or that you all be reminded of what we're doing, what I'm up to. We've got to all at least start on the same page. I, I, I hope you uh, will remember what it is that I introduced to you several weeks ago, but if not, just kind of stay with me for a minute. What I'm trying to do is answer a question for us, a question that, that should, should concern all of us, and that is... What is it about us that might possibly impact my lost friends? That is, what is it that could be true about me that would impress them in such a way that they just might be prompted to take another look, a closer look at this Savior that, that I say that I love? What is it there, what, what could there possibly be about me that the Holy Spirit of God might see fit to use uh, to, to point people toward the Savior that I'm committed to. I'm trying to build an irresistible testimony, something that will impact them. That is, I want to build a testimony out there, not, not, not in here, but out there, so that people will be impressed, not with how spiritual I am, but that they might find growing in them an appetite, an interest, a thirst, not in me, 
but in Him. Now, Jesus says it better than I just said it. He says it far more simply. He says this, Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what I'm trying to say, ladies and gentlemen. What is it that I could be or do that would be a light to them that they would notice it, but that they would be then prompted to glorify my Father in heaven? Guys, we're nothing but a, an intermediate step, an intermediate stop between them and between this heavenly Father of ours. We're supposed to be living lives that would shine in their eyes so much so that they would take a look, they would take notice of what it is that you are and do, but that they wouldn't stop there. That our light would so shine among men that they would see those good works. Oh, yes. But that then they would glorify the Father who is in heaven. So what I've tried to do in, in my um, feeble little brain is to try and understand what things would most be loved and valued by them. What is it that they, not knowing anything perhaps about the gospel that you and I love, but what things do I know they want? What things do I know that they value, as, as well as we value? Things that they perhaps could see in other people that would whet their appetites to take another look. What things do they want so that I can then ask myself, do I display those? I know they're after that. Could they possibly see it in me? Not so that they would be, oh, impressed, boy, my co-worker Jimmy Young, you know, boy, he's really a spiritual guy. No. That they might see something that would whet their appetites. And then be after what it is that I claim to have. So what I did is put together a list. Um, a list of things that I thought they longed for. Now, my list would be different from your list, I, I know. Um, um, if you were writing a list of things that you felt would impact the non-Christian world, and, and the order in which I present them really is not important, but what I'm trying to do is simply say, what do I know they want in terms of a life so that I might be able to model something like that as I build an irresistible testimony among them? You may remember we started by saying that there is a... We looked at that Acts 5 passage, you may recall. And I said there that there is a principle of difference. A principle of difference about us that ought to repel and draw at the same time. You might remember that. That was the first one. The second one I had was two weeks ago. Had to do with an attitude. An attitude of grace. That the non-Christian world can... You know, I, I'm afraid that the non-Christian world has concluded that Christianity uh, is, a, is a bunch of moralisms. They've, they've, they've heard a lot about our Bible and they've, they've concluded that the Bible is simply a collection of stories with morals to them and that we as Christians draw those morals out and go try to live them. Which is a mistake on their parts indeed. 
But I think they've concluded that what we are is nothing more than a bunch of moralists. And I'm saying that when, when they realize that their moralism doesn't match ours, they're not really particularly attracted to us. What I'm saying is, in terms of building an irresistible testimony, we've got to communicate an attitude. An attitude that says, we don't care what you've done. We're, we're forgiven people, like you could be. And um, Jesus will forgive you like he did us. And we want to live out a life of grace before you. So that was the first thing, an attitude of grace. And now I want to add to that this morning. What else could contribute to giving us an irresistible testimony? Again, my list will differ from yours. I understand that. But I want to suggest to you that one of the things that might really arouse curiosity in our uh, Christianity business, something that, that uh, if we lived it out in front of them, might prompt them to take another closer look at Jesus, one of the things I think they so desire is contentment. I think we desire it. I think whether you're a Christian or you're not a Christian, you desire contentment. So that's my first component part of an irresistible testimony. Contentment. So the question that I want to put before you now is this. Does the non-Christian world see contentment in us? Do our lives resonate with contentment? <laughs> well, if you answered yes, I want to say to you, good for you. And, and I want you to know that I think God will use you in ways that you never dreamed. As the world watches you, um, Approach life with a, with a calm sense of serenity and contentment. I think they long for it, and I think if they see it in you, I think they're going to, God is going to use you in rich ways. There is even an Old Testament image that I think describes you. It's found in Psalm 131. It's called the weaned child. Well, it's, a, it's an image of a weaned child. And I'm suggesting that if you are one that does possess that kind of contentment, I'm likening you, like the Scriptures do, I think, to a weaned child, a sense of calm, a sense of serenity, what Paul calls contentment. And I'm saying God will use you. But if you could not answer my question, that is, does my life resonate with contentment, if you could not answer yes, like so many of us, what are we going to do about that? That's what I want to talk to you about this morning. What are we going to do about it, guys, um, that indeed we lack the thing they want and the thing that we want? I have to confess to you that um, um, I'd have to answer no. Does my life resonate with contentment? I'd have to say no. And I came to that conclusion a couple of ways. I came to that conclusion by watching you, but more so by watching me. If I were the standard of contentment among Christians, the answer would have to be there's not much contentment among Christians. 
I don't think people look at Jimmy Young and say, now there, <laughs> there goes one weaned child. I think they would look at Jimmy Young and they would, they would draw another conclusion, I think. And um, they would conclude that he's more like what Chuck Swindoll calls an over-expector. I love that term, an over-expector. Um, the over-expector is one for whom enough is never enough. Um, there's always room for improvement, always an area or two that, that isn't quite up to snuff. There's, there's always something to criticize, always. The, the over-expector uh, loves to use words like ought and should. And they love sentences that contain the word must and more. For the over-expector to, um, to work harder and to reach higher, that's not the exception, that's the rule. And, and, and when you're ever in the presence of an over-expector, uh, you always get the sense that you somehow don't measure up. And what's worse, you never will. Now, if that's your problem, like it is mine, and if you have the same kind of desire that I have, number one, to be content myself, but be content so that, that they might see it, then why don't we both take a look at what God has to say about contentment. All of us say we want it. But I'm afraid most of us run right past it because we've been programmed. We've been programmed to achieve and to compete and to, to, um, to increase and to fight and to worry our way up the so-called ladder of success. You know, there's a famous quote from Robert Browning who says that a man's reach should exceed its grasp or what is heaven for. Well, we kind of have rewritten that to say something like, Reach for the stars and grab everything that's not nailed down. And I, I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, we pay the price for that, but I, I am telling you in terms of our testimony, there is a, there is a price that we pay too. So what, what I want to suggest is that we take a look at what the Scriptures has to say about contentment. We know the other ropes. We know those well, don't we? We know... The ropes about enough is never enough, don't we? So what are we going to do about that? What can we do to arrive at a, at a posture of a weaned child? Let me say quickly um, that I am not proposing that the opposite extreme is what we're after. I am not proposing that some kind of zestless, lifeless existence where we live kind of a hollowed out um, life is what we should uh, strive towards. I'm not suggesting. In fact, ladies and gentlemen, if you look at the Apostle Paul's life, you could never say that his life wasn't full of zest. But Paul is the guy that says that he was content. So let's see a little bit, or at least try to see a little bit about how he got there. All right, you with me? First of all, I, I want to answer broadly, generally, and then I want to do something that I hope is more specific in terms of 
how you and I might develop uh, this posture of being a weaned child. I want you to notice the text. Really, my, my, my text is verse 12 of Philippians 4, and there's something in there that you must you must see that I think in terms of a general, broad answer, it's there for us. Now that I speak, not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. Here's the first broad response to how is it that we're going to do something about our lack of contentment. You must understand that it is something that is learned. It is not something I'm born with. It's, a, it's, a, it's an acquired taste. It's something um, about which I can improve. I can improve and get better at this, this sense of contentment. I want to give you an example of somebody who came to contentment through a learning process. And his name was Job. At the end of his book, everybody knows the story about Job, at least I hope. How Job lost everything and he sat with his friends with boils all over his body. Well, I want to suggest to you, if you'll take a look at your Bibles in the story of Job, you will find that the last chapter of the book of Job, Job is a contented man. With boils still all over his body, he had arrived at a posture of contentment. Now, how did he get there, for heaven's sakes? Just by suffering? No, no. Ladies and gentlemen, if you, think basic, if you think that the book of Job is about suffering, you missed it. There's a lot of suffering in it. But the last four chapters, beginning at, verse, or at chapters 38, do you remember what's in those? God takes Job on a tour. The tour of a, a tour of the universe. And you might remember some of these statements. He, he turns to Job and he says, Job, where were you? Where were you, Job, when I set the foundations of the earth? Job, tell me this. When I said to the ocean, thus far you shall go and no further, where were you, Job? Job, when I taught the cattle how to calve, where were you? When I set them in place and I could... Job, tell me, where were you? My point is this, ladies and gentlemen. In those chapters, in chapters 38 and 39 and 40 and 41, Job is going to school. Job is in a process of learning some things. And while he learned them, as he learned them, because he learned them, he comes to chapter 42, and with boils all over his body, you find a contented man. Because Job learned. Now, guys, that's the broad response. What do I do about my lack of contentment? Understand this. It is something that is learned. But more specifically, what is it that Job learned, ladies and gentlemen? Well, there's one thing that's obvious from what is written in those chapters. It's clear that Job learned things about who God is. That is, the learning process begins as you and I grab hold to more of who God is. There is more about His person that you and I must have. There is knowledge of the person of God that we must grasp before we will ever get there, ladies and gentlemen. I'm saying that specifically one of the things that we've got to learn is things about who God is and what He's like. Where were you? 
Where were you when the God of heaven and earth set the boundaries of the oceans? Where were you? You see, guys, one of the things that, that this does in the process of Job's learning is that Job's problems are taken out of the center of the universe and replaced with the real center of the universe. God! Where were you? Tell me. I mean, uh, let me back up. In the midst of uh, marital difficulty, in the midst of financial difficulty, in the midst of all kinds of parental difficulty, whatever, ladies and gentlemen, tell me this. Where were you? Where were you when, when God taught cattle to calf? Where were you when He filled the oceans with Leviathan? Where were you? You see, there are things that you and I have to learn about who God is as compared to who we are that will, that will lead us in this learning process as we head towards contentment. Guys, well, let me show you, if you've got your Bible still open, see if you can find pretty quickly the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 13. Because when you study contentment, you, what you do is you go through the Bible and find every place that it's mentioned. And it's mentioned here. It's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Could I read it to you? Let your conduct be without covetousness. Now notice that this, this author says that covetousness is something that's going to rob you of contentment. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. Now, here's, here's the point I'm making. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And you see what the author has done. First of all, do you notice the reflexive he himself? That's for the purpose of emphasis. But do you notice what the author has done? He said, now listen. If you are ever going to be done with your covetousness, if you are ever going to arrive at something called contentment, there's something that you've got to know about God. You've got to know that He will never leave you nor forsake you. You've got to know that you're safe. You've got to know that you're secure. You have got to know that you are loved. And if you don't understand that much about Him, well, you know, what you will probably do is chase after every little bauble that will make you happy. If you have never discovered that God has promised you He will never leave you nor forsake you, then there's this big, huge vacuum that you try to fill up with a swimming pool. Or a new car. Or another promotion. Or a fatter portfolio. So if you're ever going to get contentment and the process of learning contentment started, there's some things that you must know about God. Now, one other specific that I want to mention. This Hebrews 13.5, I will never leave you nor forsake you, was first stated to a friend of mine by the name of Joshua. The first time you ever find this statement, it's found in Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. Now, the reason I mention Joshua's name is because I want you to look at his book with me. 
because he says something that I think is very helpful in this whole learning process. If you can find the book of Joshua, it's um, right after Deuteronomy. But Joshua, at the end of his life, in chapter 23, excuse me, chapter 21, verse 23, 43, Alright, guys, I'm telling you that contentment is something that's learned. And there's certain things that we've got to learn. You've got to learn something about the person of God. And you've got to learn something about this. Are you ready? I'm in Joshua 21, verse 43. So the Lord gave to Israel all the land of which he had sworn to give their fathers. And they took possession of it and dwelt in it. The Lord gave them rest all around according to all that he had sworn to their fathers. And not a man of all their enemies stood against them. The Lord delivered all their enemies into their hand. Now, guys, fix your eyes on the feast known as verse 45. Not a word, not one solitary word, not a word failed of any good thing which the Lord had spoken to the house of Israel, all came to pass. Now, if I could just paraphrase that just a little bit for you. Joshua looks at Israel and says, Israel, Israel, listen to me just for a second. Do you see what God has done for us in ridding all of our enemies? You saw that? Do you understand has it, has it come into your awareness? Are you aware? Do you, have you recognized that not one promise that God ever made to any of us ever failed? Israel, have you gotten it? Did you realize, did you know, did you grasp that not one promise of God that He's ever made to us has ever failed? Not one word. Never has God ever made a promise that he didn't keep. Have you learned that? Oh, my friends, have we learned that? Because I'm telling you, it is the absolute key. You know, um, you can fault me with this. I, 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 I get really upset with folks who tell me that theology is not important or it is somehow beyond their uh, intellectual and mental grasp. And I say, wait a minute, you mean to tell me that it's not important? So if you rob me of thoughts and study and understanding of God, do you know what you rob me of? I'll tell you one thing. You rob me of contentment. You took it away from me. Because the very thing that I need to know is all about who He is, what He's like, what He's promised, what he's, what he's provided for me, and then come to the realization that every promise that He has ever made, He has always kept. I found a little statement in Psalm 28, it's in verse 7, I think, where David said this, he said, um, I trusted in the Lord, and I was helped. <laughs> I trusted in the Lord and I was helped. You darn tootin' you will be. Anytime the people of God come to the conclusion that God can be trusted, anytime the people of God realize that all those promises, and by the way, there's lots of them, and there's a lot of good ones, 
Anytime I finally conclude that those promises will be kept, I can take a deep breath. And there's something about a weaned child that begins to form in me. Guys, i got two other things to say. Because what, what I did in my preparation is simply go through the Scriptures and find out wherever the word contentment was found or the concept. So I've got to tell you about two more places where the concept... Well, actually, one's got the word. The other's got the concept. The other, the other place, or the place where the concept of contentment is found is in the parable of the sower. Mark 4. Actually, verse 19 is where you really need to look if you're going to look at this. But Mark 4, 19, where Jesus says, he's talking about things that will choke out the word. You know, things that will strangle the, um, um, the, the effectiveness of truth in your life. And he says there's three things that will choke out the effectiveness of God's truth in your soul. One of them is the cares of this world. Worry. The deceitfulness of riches. Money and the desire for other things. <laughs> oh, my brother and sister in Christ. That desire for other things. That's called covetousness, which is denounced in Hebrews 13. But, but do you see what it does? It takes the truth of God and it chokes out all its vitality in our lives. The care, the desire, the deceit. <laughs> That's what's robbing us, ladies and gentlemen. If you answered no alongside me, then all those things, what they've done is choke out the effectiveness and the, and the ministry of the truth in our hearts. And so we look at those promises and we say, yeah, yeah, we know they're there. But it hasn't given me a sense of serenity. And so I, uh, I go through this life with this sense that there's something that I've missed. Something that I have to have that is more. And um, contentment is lost. There's one other thing I've got to say and then I'll wrap this up. There's another place where contentment is mentioned. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. It's a very familiar passage. In fact, I almost made it my text. But you know what? If you've got your Bibles, if you can find that real quick, I want you to see something that I've never noticed before until this week's study. This is the text, 1 Timothy 6, 6, where, where Paul says something fairly famous. He says um, in verse 6, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, now, guys, notice, godliness is not great gain. Godliness with contentment is great gain. Now, here's what I noticed, and, and this is no big deal, but I, I never noticed that in verse 5, look what he says in verse 5. Um, where does it begin? Um, uh, useless wranglings of men, corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, who suppose... That godliness is a means of gain. Uh, such, from such withdraw from. There are those who, who have concluded... It, well, my point is, not only does Paul make the positive, 
godliness with contentment is a mean, is, is great gain. Not only does he state that in verse 6, but before he states the positive in verse 6, he states the negative in verse 5. There are those people out there that suppose that godliness is great gain, but they're wrong. There are those out there who think that if they stay within certain moral, ethical, religious boundaries, and they live a certain life, and they stay away from the casinos, and they don't drink themselves into oblivion, and if they are faithful to their wives, and they give money to the church, if they stay within certain boundaries of, of, of morality and ethic, that that's what it's all about. And Paul says, no, no, no. There are people who suppose that godliness is gain, and they're wrong. Because the only gain that comes is when godliness is joined to contentment. And when there is no contentment, your godliness is not doing us a bit of good. Oh, so you don't drink much. Good. And you don't look at pornographic websites. Great. But that ain't reaching them. Because the only godliness that's really going to be useful is godliness with contentment. You know, guys, I close by coming back to our original theme. I, I could be wrong about this, but I don't know of anything that so baffles and confuses them. Is when they see us head over on, on Sunday mornings to church and worship. And then they watch us on Monday mornings step up to the starting line and chase after the same little electronic rabbits they're chasing after. You know what, you know what I'm referring to? I've, I've never been to West Memphis, um, but I have seen the commercials. On the, you know, the little, you know, they put all the little dogs. I mean, isn't that a funny picture? Reminds me of a picture. The little dogs, they're all in the little things, and they snap the gun or whatever they do, and the little electronic rabbit starts going around the thing. And, and here we are. You know, right there with them. <laughs> They watch us, you know, comb our hair and put on our finery and head to church on Sunday. And then Monday morning, we step right to the line with them. The gun goes off and there we go. We're chasing the same stuff they're chasing. And then they say, then we say to them, why don't you come to church with us? And they say, what in the heck for? You're doing it just like I'm doing it. You, you have as little contentment as I've got. I mean, I'd rather have my Sundays for golf. I'm not giving that up. If your religion only produced that. If that's all that Jesus can produce in you. For heaven's sakes, keep it to yourself. Gang. It's only godliness. With contentment. That is a means of gain. I think we all, first of all, we need to ask the Lord to go with us into that spot where we're so wounded and help heal us. Ask Him to do that with you. And then I'll give you one more assignment, which will be good for your soul. 
this week, three times, two times, you name it. Read the last five chapters of the book of Job. Starting at chapter 38. Read the last chapters. Let's let God take us on the same tour that he took Job. Our Father, I do pray that your people will discover that the world is watching and waiting for us to demonstrate that we're not only moral, but that we're content. That our morality is not what makes us happy. It's the fact that we're related to the God who has promised that he loves us and proved it at Calvary. And the God who made promises and never breaks them. Oh God, might that feed my soul. Father, among men, I'm the chief over-expector. And I pray that you will um, forgive me as well as my brothers and sisters that we might drag our souls to the place where we could, along with Joshua, say, not one word, not one word that you've ever spoken, not one promise that you've ever made has ever not been kept. Oh, you faithful God, you. Remind us of how faithful you are. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.